This is the Permaculture Podcast, and I'm Scott Mann. As we get started today, some announcements. Currently, the show is running its Winter to Spring fundraiser, and we're looking to raise $3,500 by April 20th, 2017. And we're asking 100 listeners to give $35 to meet that goal. If you'd like to contribute, you can do so using PayPal, either at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, or directly by sending something to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you'd like, you can also drop something in the mail, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to help contribute to our efforts, you can also become an ongoing supporter of the show by going to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast and becoming a listener member. While you're there, you'll also find a number of rewards for Patreon supporters, including access to the Patreon-only news feed, ad-free episodes, an exclusive monthly idea box, and many, many more. You can see the complete listing of rewards, as well as our long-term goals, at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Also, with these podcast fundraisers and updates, we're looking for any final submissions from folks who are taking part in the t-shirt design contest. So if you can go ahead and get those to us, submit them to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com as soon as you've got them wrapped up, so that we can start sharing them and deciding which one will be the first Permaculture Podcast t-shirt. Along with your listener support, we've also personally selected some community partners to work with. And the sponsor for this episode is Earth Tools, located in Kentucky here in the United States. We chose to partner with Earth Tools because they're owned and operated by a small-scale farmer and his family, with their hands-on experience actually doing this kind of work. They understand what we need on our farms and in our gardens. And with that understanding, they make high-quality tools accessible to everyone. If you're looking for the perfect addition to your farm or garden this year, you can find it and more at earthtools.com. Also, our friends Jen and Cliff at Spiral Ridge Permaculture are offering a number of permaculture design courses and workshops throughout this year and offering discounts to those programs for Patreon supporters of the podcast. You can find the associated discount codes on the Patreon page for the podcast and signing up for Scott's Gifts. If you'd like to learn more about the educational offerings at Spiral Ridge Permaculture, including all their workshops and permaculture design courses, visit SpiralRidgePermaculture.com. And as we get into the conversation between Jen Mendez and Matt Bebo about place-based education and IPEC, the second part of their discussion together, I want to let you know that Matt and Jen will be teaching a two-day workshop ahead of the 2017 Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence. And that class will be Thursday and Friday, June 15th and 16th at the Riverside Project. You'll find a link in the show notes to permikids.com where you can find out more information about that two-day workshop of teaching permaculture to children and how you can register. Following that event on Saturday, June 17th, Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence returns for its second year with the theme of the holistic homestead. Our keynote speaker for the event is Jeremy Zimmerman, author of Make Mead Like a Viking. And since Jeremy will be coming to talk about that work, we've also invited him and some other mead makers to bring some samples with them. And we'll be holding a 21 plus mead tasting in the afternoon of the event. We also have Michael Judd of Ecologia Design returning to host a hands-on learning session on natural plasters and natural building. Eric Kelly of Charm City Farms will present on raising small livestock, filling the corners and layers of the holistic homestead. Jen Mendez will also be back leading some kids-oriented programming and workshops, and Hilary Benachowski 
The herbalist and owner of Sacred Roots Herbal Sanctuary will be there to present on edible, medicinal, and ecological uses of invasive plants. Find links to all that and more in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. With all that said, let's head into episode 1708, Place-Based Education and IPEC, Part 2. I'm grateful that you're taking the time to do this interview and recording with me and share some of this knowledge about not only the thinking and the philosophy, but also some of these practical aspects that go into the work and to your thinking and what's happening, how you personally and then IPEC as a place-based social organization is integrating into these other things happening and thinking about them on a much larger scale. The next zone that I consider in this work with this organization, really kind of looking at not just the constellation of local and regional organizations as I've just described, but to really consider how we're serving America, North America primarily, for being a place of learning for educators. And so our zone four is impacting uh, public and alternative education in North America and beyond through our teacher training. So this is, I think, one of the most powerful educational experiences that we offer to other educators, where for a whole week, uh, and uh, this is how we met, Jen, uh, you came to this training years ago, we put together a week-long training in permaculture education for youth and child educators. We're now calling it seventh-generation education because really looking way ahead to figure out what we need to be doing now with this training. Uh, Gene's Farm is the setting and the context. So how the farm is set up and how we've got certain garden areas for our CSA production. And that looks a certain way uh, because there's a certain function to it. And then there are, there's a garden section for visiting school groups. And that looks a certain way because it has a certain function. And there's a, a garden area for Mother Earth School uh, that they're using like every day that's closest to their yurt. And so the location of that and the design of that is really specific to the functions that they're using. And so we've got that uh, demonstration of all these different ways. And I think when people are being introduced to permaculture, a lot of the initial questions are like, well, what makes something permaculture? And I think better said, like, what makes something a good example of permaculture design? And whether or not people have a knowledge of even what permaculture is, what they're doing could be a really good example of permaculture. And what that means to me is that the place is being viewed through the ethical foundation of permaculture. So how are we taking care of the land, how are we taking care of people, and how are we making sure that there's equitable distribution of the resources or sharing a surplus, so to speak. Um, that's really at the foundation. But beyond that, the practice of what's happening there, first of all, you've got to really know what you're designing for. In our case, it's got a lot of layers. You know, we're designing for a site that can simultaneously be productive. So we are selling food through our CSA, very limited scale, but that's one of the functions. We want to have an educational setting for public school groups to come and enjoy and to have the site designed in a way where those school groups can come and then Mother Earth School, which is based at Gene's Farm, can also be doing their thing and we're not totally on top of each other. So not just in garden design, but even how like, we're setting up the kitchen and how that's kind of spread out. It's really designed with the intention of accommodating all of these uses. And so then that design, we get the feedback as those groups come down, like how did it work? How did it not work? What can we change? And so it's that kind of active process of reflecting and getting that feedback and then making the changes and wanting to continually improve it. That's also, in my opinion, one of the hallmarks of permaculture design. 
One of those layers, a really important layer, is how the setting can be inspiring to folks from all across the country. So what are the things that are there that are relevant to pretty much anywhere in the United States and beyond, but we really, uh, so far, most of our teachers are coming from across the United States. One of the examples of that is that even during the training itself, we provide childcare for some of the folks that come who, who bring their children. And the children there are getting an experience similar to our educational programming there. And then the person who's responsible for the childcare program once a day switches with one of the educators in the course. And we hear from the person who's been working with children on what they've been doing so that parents get to know, but also the whole group really get the direct feedback of like, you might have been hearing us or seeing us and wondering what's going on. This is what we've been doing. And this is sort of like what's behind that. So there's so many little examples of how the practice is informed that I think gives teachers and educators and some people confidence because they're a parent and they recognize that inherently they're teachers and they want to learn how to provide more of a more nature connection and ecological awareness for their children. And so Jean's Farm is that place where you can really get immersed in being surrounded in this farm forest setting and learn from the best practices of the educators who have a lot of different experiences. You know, Kelly and I uh, worked with Mother Earth School for a really long time. Kelly's background is in uh, Waldorf education. She specialized in early education with the Waldorf training and the Waldorf perspective. And I think for me, not being trained in Waldorf education, but understanding through working with her and working with the school, how important it is to understand intimately the development stages of the child and incorporate that into what they're doing. You know, something as simple as crossing your hands across your body is developing the brain and having a really deep understanding of all of the systems and how they manifest and can be misdiagnosed as being problems and really fundamentally getting away from viewing children as having problems and trying as a essential responsibility of the educator to try to figure out what the teacher can do to help a child who might have a very slight uh, eye muscle that won't let their eyes stay still. So they're constantly in motion, or there might be just like a little tiny part inside the ear that is different than most people's. And so they're bounced a little off and they're always like kind of bumping into other children. And so we're trying to also teach strategies for identifying and helping children that have needs that are oftentimes misdiagnosed as just bad behavior. And what a tragedy, right? To grow up thinking that you're bad because there's something that's different about you that you can't control. And uh, we feel like it's the responsibility of our educators to be asking those questions and to develop some of the skills on identifying that. And we're not necessarily trained in diagnosing that. There are organizations that do that, but we're informing educators that there are these kind of hallmark signs. And if you wanted to pursue that, we're giving resources to them. And then also just uh, how to draw from our natural settings for what our teaching and learning props are. How many schools have like closets full of teaching supplies and, you know, it's like sometimes kind of uninspiring. And what we're teaching is that you don't need to necessarily get a catalog and order up all of your supplies in order to provide a quality education. What we're helping convey is that you don't really have to look much farther than what's immediately around you for, for materials and supplies. And so as part of a practice in our training, we're demonstrating how to make your own paintbrushes out of bamboo and tree sap glue and hair and how to make your own paints with egg and natural pigments 
and different ideas to inspire, not just like, okay, we're maybe going to show 10 or 15 different things throughout the course. But I think in permaculture, the point is that, yes, you're learning kind of specific examples, but they're presented in a way that really awakens the sense of what's possible. And so hopefully we're sending people out that are just more able to look around and identify what might be helpful as something that can be an educational tool. That's a skill set that we need to develop as educators because the sense that everything that we need, we need to like buy. It's actually a pretty bad habit that we have in the consumerist mentality in the field of education is prevalent and persistent. And so we're trying to shift that. And so how can we get through without needing to spend a bunch of money on stuff that's already pre-made? Is the painting experience, is the artistic experience a little bit different when you've made the paintbrush yourself? I think it is. We're empowering educators and empowering children to be creative and to problem solve and to recognize what's already there for you and not feeling like there isn't anything, because there is, and that's important. Oh, absolutely. I could not agree more, and I think the modeling that you guys are doing is so important, and then finding ways to be able to share that information to be able to address and help others who also aren't in your area, right? who aren't there being able to see this firsthand, who are looking for ways to do this, but immediately want to, as you said, reach for that catalog and order a bunch of things. How do we help them connect with this information to know, to be able to go back to their place and more readily see the resources that are there, that are available, that you can be innovative with, as you were just describing? Helping families, helping educators, you were talking about in the zone four here, your your teacher training, helping them think that way when they are looking to design whatever is they're going to be doing with children. So that's beautiful. Is there anything else in Zone 4 that you'd like to share that IPAC is doing? Or would you like to tell us a little bit about Zone 5? Yeah, so I'll finish up Zone 4 and then move into Zone 5. Um, the other aspect of the work that we're doing is that we do actually take these trainings to other places. And while it doesn't have the richness of our learning environment, which we as the educators who are putting on this training know really intimately, uh, we do have a couple of other places that we're bringing this course. For example, this summer, 2017, we're going to be teaching this course in Canada at our eco-village. And that's a setting that has, I think, the, the richness, the ecological richness of Genes Farm. It's comparable. It's also a community. And so there's that aspect as well. And they're trying to figure out how to start a school there. Somebody who had taken our course in the past is involved in nature-based and permaculture education up there. And so she's really wanted to bring this training there. And so we're going to be teaching there. And we've also done a two-day version at different conferences and convergences. And we're hoping to get to the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence this year and just kind of introduce it through uh, when we do the two-day workshop. Uh, one of the titles that we have for it is uh, Embodied Permaculture Education. And I think it's important to point out that we're not teaching children necessarily like permaculture principles, like here's the list and showing like a lot of models and graphs. The knowledge that I've gained and the knowledge that has been informed through the Waldorf education perspective is that developmentally, that's not really where they're at. And actually one of the problems that we're working with is that how much academics has creeped into early education, uh, there's actually a detrimental aspect to that. It's kind of contrary to what a lot of people are thinking. I know a lot of parents who 
and why not? You want your child to have as good of a chance as possible to succeed. But where I think we're missing a really important point is that children are changing so quickly in their first seven, nine, 15 years. When they're ready for reading, they're going to pick up reading really fast instead of really having a lot of sit time in a classroom staring at a page we want to be really developing their senses and so we've begun to use the term pre-academics to put a name to all the things that support children in being really good at academics but they're not inherently academic unto themselves so it's really developing sense of spatial awareness and just really kind of sinking into the full capacities of our bodies and focusing a lot of things like the social relationships and sharing and caring. And when a child is most fully developed, where they're so ready to develop, that's really like essential at that point in time, then they're going to not only be more prepared for the academic stuff later, but they are going to be more competent socially, more aware of their surroundings. We actually have this phenomenon where People are getting hurt as adults at an alarming rate because when we were younger, we didn't really ever experience an uneven walking surface. And so I remember hearing from an author of a book that focuses on converting parking lots into really dynamic play spaces for children. She was saying that to this case in Germany where the insurance company that I guess ensures the whole city, a little different system than we have here in the States, of course was wanting the school to make a more dangerous playground. And she's like, "This, I made sure this wasn't just something that was mistranslated. The point was that the insurance company was recognizing more and more adults were having more and more injuries from walking into something or, or falling, tripping. And it was in everybody's best interest, the people's interest and the insurance company's interest to, at a younger age, give children more opportunities to experience the edges of their senses of balance and their perception. And so... Falling down when you're younger is a lot easier on your body than falling down when you're older. Getting familiar with walking on uneven ground when you're younger, you, you know, did trip and fall, it's, it's less impactful. Actually, our body is like, uh, until we're like nine, our bones are immensely flexible and can withstand you know, a lot more. And if you ever see, you know, kids scuffling and rolling around, you're like, some adults are like, oh my God, like they're going to get hurt. Well, we really need to let children have opportunities to experience the limits of their senses and their perception when they're younger so that as they grow up, they're not just more well-equipped to meet those, what's going to be our more challenging future socially uh, and economically, but really even just physically navigating our environment. We need to be prepared for that. Matt, there's so many things that you said that really connect, really resonate with me. And of course, also then the work that I do with Parmi Kids which definitely connects. There's a way for what IPEC is doing and what I do with Permi Kids to intersect with one another. We for sure have an edge, but I find it so interesting because where you focus on the in-person training, and I, I do a bit of that, but I am often helping other family groups, other homeschooling groups, other educators figure out and look through the lens of this permaculture that is not just about the landscape, but becomes part of your being. And there's this idea that I've been talking about lately that tries to help paint a picture, help put the right words so that people maybe understand this a different way, because it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of going about learning, educating, living. 
And so I've been saying to folks that for many, the idea of a CSA, a community sport agriculture, joining something like that is pretty well understood and in many communities supported. Well, I've been using the term CSE, community sport education. So I ask myself as I hear you speaking, and even though I have been connected with IPEC for several years, I wonder how when I look at the zones in the work that I do, which is very much also socially based, my place-based is different, of course, where you focus on that in-person component there at Jean's Farm. My work is online and it's connecting with others around the world and helping them see their place, see their space, see themselves, see the children, see one another, see their community, see the resources available at the community level, seeing those things and starting to think about how to put them together in a unique way. And so I've been using this idea of a CSE, Community Sport Education. So education is one of our greatest resources. And for me, it's a labor of love, the idea that it can nourish not just natural resources, but natural relationships. And so what might be possible if we started thinking about what we're doing through more of the lens of a CSE, or for those of us who are working at, for you, what is zone four, and I'm going to guess as we move into the description of zone five, moving out, that this connects as well. For those of us that those are our more primary zones, how can we start thinking about community sport education, CSE? And thinking about this as an alternative social and economic model of education, creation, inspiration, distribution that nourishes our children, families, communities, and earth. What would it be like to have a place where all these individual efforts from people around the world that are connected to education that nourishes life come together? to have educational plans and resources that help others further connect and use these resources with what's already in their place for materials and supplies. You mentioned this with making paintbrushes with the children. What if there was a place where people who are doing this sort of work that connect with you and IPEC's work at Zone 4 and Zone 5 can support IPEC's work by being part of a CSE where they share that work and where others who are looking for that kind of work, who want to be expanding their understanding of, of education to incorporate this, all the things you've been talking about, what if there is an alternative educational marketplace that helps children learn and helps the educators learn these skills that reawaken them to this understanding of what is possible. And so you have my mind whirling right now about how this idea of CSE might feed into and be able to further support IPEC's work. So I would like to just sort of let that sit for a little bit. And I would like to hear a little bit more about now Zone 5 from you. So going into Zone 5 a little bit here, uh, now what I'm referring to is where Zone 4 is really focused on the teachers that are coming from even beyond our bioregion to attend our teacher trainings, and then IPEC traveling within the United States occasionally, and in some cases even into Canada. Zone 5 is really getting off of the continent. We're really taking an international look at what's necessary here. And 
what we're wanting to really breathe life into is the, the network of educators, call them whatever you want, race-based educators, permaculture educators, sustainability educators. Point being, let's really learn from best practices on a global scale because there are things that are really unique to, say, a program in Portland, Oregon, USA, and there's a lot that we have to learn from programs that are operating in places where they don't have the same access to resources, they don't have the same access to different things, and so it's going to be designed differently. And it's important for us to realize that if we're just promoting this work in wealthy countries, there's a huge population that needs this more than any other, like just knowing how to engage in our environment in a way that feeds us and to be able to engage in a way where we're not creating the conditions that historically human civilization has repeated over and over again of overusing a place as it got out of balance and then really not being able to be there as we destroy both the ecological and the human capacities of those places. And so what I see as one of the roles of IPEC is to seek out opportunities to network and collaborate with other organizations that are doing similar work and um, as it happens, the, the country that we've been working with the most uh, over the last few years has been Japan. In Japan, there are a lot of similarities to the United States, and there are a lot of differences. And it's been really interesting to gain that international perspective, because until I think we have that perspective, we're still kind of insular in our thinking and really only kind of exercising the muscles that we know that we have. And it really took uh, traveling to Japan, you know, as a completely different continent, not just the United States and Canada being our sphere of work, but to recognize that there are certain things that I struggle with, that we struggle with, that they've got dialed in really well. And there's certain things that they're struggling with or looking to gain more experience and familiarity with that we're doing really well. And so it's this opportunity to have this exchange where, for example, in the United States, I feel like individualism is, a, is really strong, and there are, of course, positive and negative attributes to that. But we don't have really any shortage of people that are willing to kind of step forward and, and try something new. But I think the, the negative side of that is that we, we have a really hard time collaborating and partnering. And even the nonprofit model itself is set up to pit organizations that have the most in common in the work they're doing against each other for those resources. Now, it's arguably by design. It's still a problem because we know that we need to figure out how to work better together. But I would venture to say that most people listening to this podcast have been a part of at least one, if not more, organizations who are trying to do this really wonderful service to their community, however they find that. But it was really the, the interpersonal stuff that prevented them from being successful in that work. And so this sort of hyper-individualism and like everybody wanting their idea to be the one that gets the attention and to be successful and the glory and all that, like we kind of, we've got to work on that. And we really got to work on that. And so what I've experienced in the international work is that in Japan, one of my first impressions of some of the cities that I visited on a speaking tour was that there are a lot of public spaces that the cities, the municipalities have designed and access to public space, pretty phenomenal. I was really impressed with that. Here in the United States, I feel like citizens are constantly having to advocate for more public space because land is valued a little bit differently. And, you know, the value of an acre site for development is going to bring in more revenue for the city than if it's an open space. And so priorities 
tend to be a little bit more economic and market driven. What I noticed about my time in Japan is that a lot of those spaces were already there, but they didn't have a lot of community input. So they're being enjoyed. But when I'd be doing a workshop or something like that, and the folks that would be hosting me there are essentially wanting to help exercise the individualism of the participants because there tends to be a little bit more of like a, a groupthink mentality. And what I've experienced as a reluctance to stand out from the crowd with a new idea, especially one that the invisible structures aren't accommodating yet. And so it would be an idea that's currently like not possible legally. And so we're trying to figure out how to empower the creative juices and have that be expressed. What an amazing thing to hear what people are thinking. And when this has been going on, people have the most amazing ideas. And there are a lot of projects that some are led by permaculture organizations, some other organizations, where creating forums for people in the community to share what their visions are, that's really powerful for that community to get more of its own identity and to be more of the designer and creator of that place. And one of the unique aspects of the time in Japan that was really profound for me too is that just the perspective of understanding that in the US we're a really young country. And when we talk about tradition, it's really a much shorter time frame than a uh, country like Japan, which has thousands of years of uh, history and tradition. And so there's more of a desire to make sure that those old traditions aren't lost. So if you can imagine and I think a lot of places, because we're such a globalized world now and through social media and all the forms of communication, the young generations in a lot of places are kind of hip to some of these newer ideas and want to see uh, some of these new ways of organizing and thinking and participating and want to see those expressed more and more. And I think the concern of some of the older generations, and this was more pronounced in Japan, was that you know already so much of the older ways have been lost You know, World War II major, major tradition-shifting event in the country of Japan. It breaks my heart to think about how much loss occurred in that war. And there are elders in communities that lived through that experience and are the ones right now that are holding on to those memories and those traditions. And while a lot of places do have traditions and they have festivals that correlate to the time of year and that's more present than in the United States, uh, these individuals, uh, the elders of some of these communities, recognize that it's at risk of being lost as the older generations fade out and the newer generations come into being responsible for the continuation of these things. And so as a design strategy, what seems to be so important there is, and also inspiring for me as I'm coming back to the United States is to make sure that we are including the voices, the stories, and the, the memories of our elders, our community elders, because it's never going to be a brand new idea. I think that's really the solution. It's going to be how the new impulse fuses, sort of refigures the older traditional values. That's how we're really going to get critical mass for broad enough scale social change that we can actually change at a global scale. So coming back to the United States after uh, some of these visits, I've been really inspired to ask ourselves, like, well, what are those traditions that we have that we want to maintain? And how can we make sure that this isn't just hip to, you know, the 20 and 30 something, that this is actually feeling relevant to people of all ages? And that's a design challenge. That's a really big opportunity for us. 
And I am left thinking about how my zones one and two, three, and the, the zones that are closer to me actually connect with you at your zones four and five, where you and IPAC are looking to put a lot of energy into the zones that are closest to you because that's the core of what you are doing. If the core of what I am doing connects with you at zones four and five, how can I continue to help what you are doing by integrating with you at these zones four and five and picking up the ball, as they would say, that closes the loop from local to bioregional to global and back in a way that is aligned with this ethical foundation of both ecological and human development. To put it simply, nourishing life. How exciting to know that for me, this might be a fantastic opportunity to connect the core of what I do, not just as a voice of support on your board and sharing what's happening with IPEC and when you guys do have different teacher training courses and things like that, but actually integrating our functions, my inner zones with your zones four and five. How exciting is that? And helping perhaps others who hear this, who might think that their work is aligned with what IPEC does, but maybe they struggle to see how what they do can intentionally connect and feed into the work that IPEC does. Maybe there's ways for us to start thinking about and realigning our work in our place, with our community, whoever we are, with going through these five zones of service and action for place-based and social organizations and helping us use this way of thinking for those of us who are engaged in place-based and social work, and also to see how our fingers can branch out and reach and connect with others. Because ultimately, I think it's worth asking the question, what are we doing? What are we doing in the work that we are doing, whatever that may be, if we aren't making our places, our natural places and spaces accessible and welcoming with this seventh generation education mindset and not just in a physical place-based way of thinking about that question, but also the local to global social design of connecting our work and building this community-supported education and activism network. So I encourage people to learn more about IPEC and the work that you're doing in this way of thinking about the five zones of service and action for place-based and social organizations, and how can you support and join this living laboratory of community support education and activism? Have you seen that as this thing that's just what the younger educators want to do? This is actually really old, and we're re-enlivening it. We're reinvigorating it, re-energizing it. And so we can't do that unless we're connected to those stories and those traditions. So the multi-generational aspect that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I think is core to the work that we're doing. And it's part of the reason why I feel so blessed to have Steve Johnson there at Gene's Farm because he has those stories and he has that wisdom. And to not include that would be the detriment of the movement. Wow, you have just left us with, gosh, so much to think about. I want to make sure that people have a way to continue to follow up with you, with IPEC, to continue to learn more, to get involved, to support what's happening, the important work that you are doing that reaches all through those zones. And I think that you've just left us with so much to consider with whatever 
is happening in our lives, in our place, whatever our interests, our passions are, and how we can start to think of them in a much more interconnected way, thinking about the intersectionality between what's happening in all these levels, all these zones that you described today. So is there anything that you would like to add to conclude your thoughts here? Anything that you really want to leave us with? And again, please do include how people continue to learn about what's happening with IPEC and support the great work you guys are doing. Yeah, thanks. I think the last thing that I would like to point out is that I've gone through these five zones and they're somewhat fluid and still kind of a forming concept with me. I don't really claim to be the expert of anything. This has been really helpful for me in framing what I'm putting my energy towards in the organization and how we as an organization are really moving forward. And I think one of the essential parts to point out is that what the zone model for me really reflects is an understanding of bringing yourself, spending most of your time and energy with what's immediately surrounding you and not necessarily focusing a disproportionate amount of energy way far out because what we know is that the farther out we go, the less individual influence we have. Not to say that it's not important to do. And so in presenting this zone concept of looking at the work of a social organization that has its place as a certain zone one in the center, we're spending the large majority of our time focused on that zone one and developing that site and that land stewardship responsibility is the central point. Like if we do nothing else but help keep adults and children connected to this place and have this place be thriving. That's one of our essential things. As we move out more into regional and national and then even international work, a smaller percentage of our time is being focused on that. And so the design is to have those experiences be as potent as possible. We have the goal of having a representative at the International Permaculture Convergence this year that will be held in India. And for me, that reflects an opportunity to network and collaborate and really hear the stories and experiences of folks that are doing this work in a country that's very different from the United States. It's also very different from a country like Japan. And to really deepen my understanding of what their driving motivations are and how I, in a first world country that has access, even though it feels limiting sometimes, uh, having access to really an immense amount of resources. How I can also just continue to do a better job thinking about of how I'm making usefulness of what I have and you know where the focus is. At each sort of zone, I can name for you like who I'm trying to serve. And as it goes out to the sort of global scale, it's just the recognition that there are so many people and children in this world that have such a hard time in their day-to-day life. I recently learned that there are something like 50 million refugees in the world. And that was shocking to hear. And this isn't just folks that are in their country and are having a hard time with these are people that have been displaced from and cannot return to their place. So how blessed are we to have places that we don't feel like we need to leave? And so how does this work apply to children in countries that have much more limited access to clean food, clean water, appropriate shelter? How does this apply to children and families in this world that are displaced from their place? How can the ideas of making place translate to refugee camps? How can that inform the kind of work that we're doing where we live, for example, to make it easier for refugees to resettle and for them to feel like they have a home and feel like they're welcome. Right now, this interview uh, is happening on January 20th. 
It's a really interesting day in the history of the United States of America. And I, for one, am going to make sure that folks that are coming from countries that are war-torn, who have so much less than I do, have an easier time making that transition. And our family recently attended a training and are making a family commitment to helping teach how to use the public transportation system to resettling refugees, help them grocery shopping, help them move in and get the furniture and beds and pots and pans and stuff that they need. And so it's all connected. And this interview can be 45 hours long. We really went into it all, but to just distill it down to that, I want to be really mindful of where we're putting our time and our energy and to not exclude that bigger picture, but to also not overemphasize it at the detriment of the place that I am and that I'm responsible for. So it's finding that balance. And part of the effort for us, like I said, really comes through the community support that we get, but there's no denying that part of it is also financial-based. And so if you're listening to this podcast in late winter, early spring of 2017, we currently have a fundraising campaign going on aimed specifically to help us out in areas within these five zones. And you know, that money will help us further realize some of these goals that we have and further enable us to support the community. So certainly an aspect of community support is to have the financial resources for the things that still require being purchased. So a lot of this work, I, I think we all are now, I think, pretty familiar with community-supported agriculture. But really what we are, Jen, is that we're community-supported activists. And if it wasn't for folks recognizing the value of the work that we're doing and helping in the way that they have the means to, it really wouldn't be possible. And so if folks were interested in seeing more about the work that IPAC is doing and uh, whether you're interested in volunteering, if you're local or if you're not local and you have financial means to make a contribution, we have a campaign going on right now. And regardless of when you hear this, of course, we have ways to receive your support. Our website is permaculture.us.com. That is the website for the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children. And on that website, there's information on how to find our campaign. You can also find us on Facebook just by searching our name. And we also have a PayPal account. And the the website for that, the short website, is paypal.me slash IPEC. So it's paypal.me slash I-P-E-C. And I like to think that for every dollar we get, we turn it into $100,000 worth of creating the world that we want to make for future generations. So it's money well spent. And we, of course, appreciate any support that we do get. So thank you again for taking the time. And that, again, was permaculture.us.com to be able to learn more about IPEC. So thank you, Matt. Great. Thanks so much, Jen. And that was Matt Bebo of the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children. You can find out more about him and the work of IPEC at permaculture.us.com. I also am going to include two links in the show notes to a fundraise that IPEC's running in order to help them continue their programs. If you'd like to find out more about my friend Jen Mendez, including her own podcast on teaching children about permaculture, and to see the wide range of resources that she offers, you can find her at permikids.com. A lot of what Matt and Jen talked about in these two interviews are things that I use to engage with my children whenever we're out and about in the world to help connect them to nature. And it's been really interesting for me to watch because my daughter is a bit more of the forager. 
She's looking around for what leaves she can eat, what berries are available and edible, and just taking stock of the natural world around us. Whereas my son is more interested in the earth care side of things. And he and I will usually go two or three times a year to go do trash cleanup in his favorite park. It'll just be one day he'll walk up, have our work gloves ready, and ask me to go grab a trash bag. We'll fill up our water bottles and go to the park and just pick up trash for an hour or two. And that's something that I never asked him to do, but that just came out of this environmental education focus that didn't engage in tragedies. So we're not talking about the collapse of the ice shelves or the loss of the polar bears, or even, because of where we are in Pennsylvania as part of the migratory route, the loss of monarch butterflies. Instead, we just kind of study these things and work together to support what it is we care about. That idea of not talking about tragedies, there's a line, I don't remember if it's David Orr or David Sobel, who they say that we shouldn't introduce any kind of heartbreak until the fourth grade, that that's around the point in which it's age-appropriate to begin to talk about these other issues. But as teachers, educators, and parents, with young children, it's about establishing this place, this relationship with the world around them. And if you're interested in exploring this further, there are three books that I recommend anybody pick up and read that were really influential in my understanding of environmental education more broadly that then narrowed down on these ideas of place and nature relationships. The first is Earth in Mind by David Orr. And you can find used copies of it, but I would look for the 10th anniversary edition because it is updated and has some additional information. And it's just a series of short essays about these different topics within the world of education. The other is by David Sobel, titled Beyond Ecophobia, Reclaiming the Heart in Nature Education Beyond. And it's really designed for teachers and parents about how we can nurture an understanding and care for the world in children at an early age. And that's a fairly short volume that's an easy read and something that if you ever wanted to do like a permaculture book club for parents and teachers would be a really good place to start because it's not a very technical or complicated read and it's just really enjoyable. Another book that I also recommend that's an enjoyable read similar to David Sobel's is Richard Lowe's Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And as is in the title, this is the book that established this idea of a nature deficit disorder. And though Richard's very clear in the beginning that this is not any kind of a clinical diagnosis, but that there is something to be said about not having access to green space, not spending time outdoors, and getting to know the area where we live. One of the lines that really stands out from that book for me is that when he was writing it, children wanted to stay inside because that's where the electrical outlets were. And I'm seeing that even more and more. And again, this is anecdotal, so I don't have any research on it at the moment, but it is something I'd like to explore further. I see more and more folks as we sit in parks or outside spaces where we're attached to devices. And so we're in the outside world, but we're still looking for power because of the screens that we now carry. You know, how many of us who have a smartphone or a tablet also carry some kind of a power bank to recharge it or have a charger in our vehicle to make sure that whatever it is we have is ready to go whenever we need it? I wonder sometimes if it's not really about need, but just want this attachment as our technology moves from being a tool to being a leash, how that impacts us. And it really is Last Child in the Woods that got me thinking this way, and it's something that I recommend. And all of these books are readily available through online resources or your local bookstore. If I have to recommend a reading order, it'd be the inverse of how I presented them here. I would begin with Richard Love, then read David Sobel, and finish with David Orr. If you've read any of these books, 
or are an educator yourself and are engaged in some of these ideas that Jen and Matt talked about, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on all of this. Or if you're a parent and you're looking for resources for how to do more of these kinds of things, let me know. I've got all kinds of things on my bookshelf and elsewhere that can provide you the tools and information to begin creating your own at-home nature-immersed program. And the phone number to do that is 717-827-6266. My email address is show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. And of course, you can always slip something into the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And so, until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.